Such a great song to remind us that He is worthy. Today we're going to talk about the next parable in line. And as we start off, I, I want to talk about some history. I want to talk about some stories. One of my favorite eras of time is to study the history of World War II. I really enjoy that. One of the more interesting things is to imagine yourself in the place of people in the different stories. Maybe it's one of those freezing cold soldiers. We can, re we can resonate with that after this morning. Um, one of those freezing cold soldiers at the Battle of the Bulge. Maybe it's uh, thinking about what it would be like to be in Pearl Harbor as you are, uh, the sneak attack happens. But the one that comes to me all the time is, what would it be like to be a prisoner of war, a POW? What would your day look like? What would, how would you get through the day? A lot of the POWs, they made it their task to escape. They made it their task to try to confuse and subvert the enemy and all that they were doing. One of my favorite movies, and some of you might say amen to this, is The Great Escape. Phenomenal movie, just because it's got Steve McQueen in it, but a phenomenal movie nonetheless. But one of the things that I thought was most interesting was the ingenuity of these prisoners of war. They're locked in a prison. They're, 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 they're treated very, very poorly, but yet they come up with creative solutions. And the one that I thought was the most interesting involved a cantina, right? A cantina is a metal container that soldiers would put their water in, a bits and pieces of metal, different types of metal, and stealing an electrical wire from a wall in a prison camp. And what did this person make? He made a radio using a cantina, some pieces of wire, and actually using the barbed wire that went around the entire prison as the antenna for his radio. He could pick up radio uh, broadcasts from hundreds of miles away. And guess what he heard? He heard reports of how the Allies were winning. He heard these reports over and over again. And though he's surrounded on all sides by the enemy, keeping him as a prisoner of war, he knew the war was coming to an end and his side was winning. I wonder, did he keep that to himself? Or did he tell everybody and anybody he could find? So th this came to my mind today because of the passage we're looking at today. This is called the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. Either one works. Tares is probably a better word to use there. This is our second parable that we've looked at. It's our second agricultural parable. And what we're going to see is this week and next week, when we look at the mustard seed and then we look at the leaven, we, we see that there's a lot of agricultural parables that Jesus teaches from. I think there's two reasons for this, and this maybe is our first lesson before we even get into this passage, is that agriculture takes time. The people of Jesus' time would have understood it's not a push a button, wait 30 seconds, and poof, your food's here. Even a huge harvest takes months of work. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And so I think that the thing we need to remember is that the Christian walk, the Christian maturity takes time. It still is happening, 
but sometimes we can't quite see what is happening. And I think that's been the, the overarching theme of what we've seen so far, and we'll see it again next week, is that the kingdom is coming, and, and it doesn't quite look like what we would expect, and it takes time, but it is happening. This parable we're looking at today is unique to Matthew. This is the only gospel in which it appears. And Matthew um, tells us that Jesus explains the parable, which makes my job a whole lot easier today to be able to explain it to you. Last week, we talked about good soil and what the difference between a good soil and bad soil. This week, we're talking about good seed versus bad seed. So these parables, again, that word means to lay beside. So this is Jesus taking something that they knew and laying it beside the way his kingdom works and saying, this is what it's like. We must remember, though, what we saw a few weeks ago, that these parables do two things simultaneously. For some, it opens up the kingdom. And it's like, oh, that's what it's like. That makes sense. For others, there's confusion because they're outside of the kingdom. They're outside of God's chosen, at least at this point. And they're going, it's something about seeds. I, Jesus is opening up a seed store. I, I don't know what's going on here. So parables always are answering a question. And so we need to read it and go, what is, what is Jesus answering? What, is, what question is he foreseeing in the minds of the disciples and maybe even in our minds that he is answering in this parable? So let's read it again. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go up and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus puts this parable out there, and like I said, he's going to explain it in a second. But before we get to his explanation, and what that means for us today. There's a few things I need to make sure you understand so that we're in the same place where the disciples were when they heard this. The first thing is this phrase, kingdom of heaven. This is the same exact thing as the kingdom of God, right? God's residence, God's address, God's place of existence most fully is heaven. So why doesn't Jesus say the kingdom of God? Well, the reason he's doing this is because he's going to say the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven over and over again, and he doesn't want to have any sort of stumbling block in the way of the Jews. See, the Jews took taking God's name in vain very, very seriously. They would not speak the name Yahweh. Instead, they'd put words in place of that. And so here, if he said, you know, the kingdom of God... He would be saying the kingdom of just Theos, it's not God's name, but he's referencing God and there's a chance that some of the Jewish people would get offended by this. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to make this as easy as possible for you to hear this, even though it is in parable. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing is this whole weeds thing. And like I said, a tear is probably a better example here because many of you have gardens, many of you have uh, grass in your yards and you can see the weeds pretty easily right off the bat. But not these weeds. These weeds are called darnel, 
D-A-R-N-E-L. Darnell weeds. They actually are from the same exact family of the wheat. They're from the same family. The difference is, is they're poisonous, and they'll make you very sick, and if you eat enough of them, you'll die. So these were weeds that grew up, and they looked exactly like wheat until the last possible moment, and then, boom, they look, they look totally different. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' time, the Romans had made a law saying, you can't plant Darnell in your enemy's fields. It must have been happening enough that they made a law to say, don't do it. So this was kind of, I don't think this was a prank. I think this was a way to get back at people. And so Darnells were what we're seeing here. So what's the big deal? Why couldn't you pull these up? Well, here's what happens. The, the Darnells, they grow and their, their roots go sideways. And their roots actually grab onto the roots of the wheat. And they start using each other. And so what would happen is if you went and you pulled up the Darnells, you would actually pull out roots that went to good, healthy wheat. Okay, so just go chop them down. Well, if you chop them down, those roots would then die and they would choke out the roots of the wheat. And so there is a very intricate system going on with these types of weeds. So you can't pull them out if you want to save all the wheat. So that's the first thing we see. So with this in mind, what is the question that Jesus is answering here? What is he trying to help these disciples understand? Well, let's look at his explanation. Verse 36. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who has sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So they, Jesus leaves the crowd, and now he's explaining to his disciples somewhere else, inside of a house or something like that. And he says, here's the list of characters, and here's all the things that are going on in this parable. So what is the question that is being asked? And the question is, as the disciples would have, is if your kingdom's here, why has nothing changed? If your kingdom's here, how come it looks like the enemy is winning? If your kingdom's here, why have the Jews not flocked to you? As a matter of fact, why is Rome still in power? Why has the righteous and the unrighteous not been separated and judged? These are all the questions. We could sum it up with one big question. Why has your kingdom not come the way we expect it? Why are things not the way we think they should be? You know, and there's, there, these questions are probably not that different than our questions. Yeah, we don't worry so much about the Roman Empire anymore, granted. But if we think about it, we look around and we go, why are we surrounded by weeds? Why are we surrounded by the unrighteous? Why is it that it looks like at every turn the unrighteous win? And every time the righteous get a win, the unrighteous comes right in and poisons it. Why is judgment not occurring? Why is it that you're delayed, Lord? These questions are all here. And the answer to them is in this parable. And I'm going to give you the answer right now, and then I'm going to show it to you. And the answer is, when we ask, why has it not come the way you want, we wanted it to? The answer is, because God is in control. God is sovereign. Now you go, wait a sec, that doesn't seem like that's the answer. But that's the answer that we're going to see throughout here. And because he's sovereign and because he's in control, 
We know that if we are in him, we will survive the judgment. And conversely, there will be those who will not survive the judgment. So really, what we see here, this parable is about who God is and what he's like. And I have four, way, four things that we're going to look at that God is like in this passage. The first one is God is in control. If you want your big $5 word, it's the word sovereign. God is sovereign. Second, God has a plan. In the Bible, we call this, or in, in, in theology circles, we call this God's providence. It's not just the name of a hospital. Providence. Third, God is love, or benevolent, if you want a big word. God is benevolent. God is love. And then finally, God is just. He is the just judge who is coming soon. So we see there's four things that we see here, and we're going to see these as we walk through here, but we need to keep this in mind that God is in control. He has a plan, which right there, if we stopped there, we'd go, oh, but what if his plan's bad? Well, we go right to the next thing is that he is love and he is all good, so his plan can't be that, and he's just, so his plan is going to be righteous. So the righteous and the wicked will grow together and will not be separated until the very end. The righteous and the wicked will grow together and will not be separated until the end. If we think about it, this, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about here, it, it's seed being spread. I mean, that's very passive. There's not a whole lot going on there. There's no clubs and there's no swords and there's no throwing it. I mean, this is just spreading it. It's sprinkling it. It's very much not like the world's way of doing things. So we see the sower is Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The bad seed is the sons of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now, one thing I want to point out here before we dig in a little bit more is that notice it says the field is the world, not the church. Now, technically, we are in the world, so yes, this would potentially apply. But there are some people that in past have said, well, this is what the church is like. And we just have to realize there's going to be weeds in our church and we just got to deal with it. That's actually not what's being dealt with here. Instead, what's being dealt with is why are there weeds everywhere in the world? Why are there more weeds than there are wheat? Why is it that it looks like the weeds are winning? That's what this parable is about. So let's focus on this. The, 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 the master is what we need to focus on. So the first thing we see is that he sows his seed. He sows his seed. He does not use a club or a hammer, even though he does have one. Instead, he sows it. Notice that in verse 43, Jesus is the source of his people. We come from him. He is the one that makes us. He sows the people in the world, not we sow ourselves. He sows us. It's important to note that, that Christ's work comes first and then the devil's comes second. And we got to get that in the right order. When we get that in the wrong order, we get all sorts of wonky beliefs. Instead, the Christ comes and sows his people. Satan cannot consume Christ's seed. All he can do is confuse Christ's seed. All he can do is copy so the Son of Man comes and he sows the seed. Now notice it says that word scattered there. Now that's, a, that's an interesting word. Scattered means to spread all over the place. 
And if you're like me, you think back to last week and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, the dummy, you know, he spread the seed on the, on the rocks and on the, the hard ground. I mean, come on. That's not what this is referring to. This is a, we got to use this parable on its own. And what this is talking about is it's saying he spreads it over a vast area. And this is what we need to understand is the gospel by nature spreads. You can't keep it to yourself. And, you know, one of the times in our, in our history of the church that we tried to keep it to ourselves was in Acts. You remember the story in Acts? The disciples get together and they had the biggest, you know, come to Jesus moment. They had thousands of people come, right? And it's like, wow, we got this big church and we're going great. But they'd forgotten what Jesus had said. What did he say? Go into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? And so they're all huddled up together. And then what happens? Persecution breaks out. So what do the, what do the followers of Jesus do at this point? They spread out, and guess where they go? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And so what happens is, is when, when persecution comes, it makes Christians get out of our little bubbles and spread out. And what we do is we spread out and we share the gospel. We take the gospel with us. Jesus scatters us through the world so that we'll take his truth with us. And what's amazing to me is it, it's so counterintuitive, right? So think about the conversation you would have if you were a disciple from Jerusalem, okay? So you just became a believer, follower of Jesus, and somebody comes and they're going to they're gonna arrest you, they're going to throw you in jail, so you flee to Samaria, okay? You're hanging out with the Samaritans, they're not your best friends in the world because the Samaritan Jew thing, but someone goes, hey, hey, uh, why are you new to town? And you go, well, I actually, um, I became a Christian, and um, yeah, and then they were trying to kill me, and so I moved here. Do you want to learn about Jesus? Right? Oh, we, we would go, that person would be like, heck no, that's not going to happen. But that's not what we see. We see the exact opposite of that, don't we? So we have this view of persecution that it's just, oh, it's so bad and we got to hunker down. No, persecution's time where we stand up and share Jesus more. And there was a revival in Samaria. Then there was a revival with the Gentiles. Not a revival, just a revival, right? With the Gentiles. Because when you spread, when he scatters his seed, that's a good thing. It's take Jesus with you. So what does this look like? This scattering and, and taking Jesus with you. Well, it starts with seeing what people in your community need, meeting those needs, and then telling them why you're doing it. Not to make the community better, not to spread good cheer, but because of what Jesus has done for you. This can look like the story I saw of about a Christian man who loved to work with wood, and he saw that there were two young boys in his neighborhood getting into all sorts of trouble. They had no parents. So he pulls those boys in and teaches them how to work with wood, and when they ask him, why are you doing this? He said, because Jesus loves me, and I know he loves you. Or maybe it's you have a friend who's going through a really rough time and you just sit beside her and you put your hand on the back and you rub her back and you just simply say, Jesus loves you. God loves you. Right? That's what we need to do. See, we need to understand as Christians, we have this incredible opportunity to incarnate Jesus to our fellow human beings. Now, what does that mean, right? Incarnate, that's what Jesus did when he came. He was God in the spirit, became God in the flesh. That means to incarnate needs to be enfleshed. Now, I'm not saying we're taking Jesus into us and all of a sudden he's animating us. What I'm saying is, is we are his ambassadors. So when we show up somewhere in a hospital bed, 
next to someone who's sick, when someone's having something good happen, something bad happen, we show up and we represent Jesus in that moment. We represent Jesus to those people. For some who don't know him, that's as close as they're going to get to him until God grabs a hold of their heart. So you look at that and you go, yeah, yeah, I get that. That's what pastors and elders have to do. No, that's what Christians do. That, that explosion in the book of Acts was all untrained Christians. The one thing they all had in common was they knew Jesus as their Lord and Savior. No training required. Do you need to have all the answers? What if they ask me about? No. And actually, sometimes shutting your mouth and sitting there is a good thing. You don't have to have all the answers, but you know the one who does. So presence is key. Our presence in the world is key. We cannot hide who we are. It needs to be out there in front. And we'll see this again in a minute. So now let's talk about the weeds in the field. Well, the first thing we see is that evil is going to grow. And it's insidious. It's not a full frontal attack. Haven't we seen this, though? I mean, we see this in our world all the time. Right? Something good comes along, and then there's just some evil that poisons it. The example that I think of, because it's a really easy example, is movies and television. Matter of fact, my family and I, we had a conversation about this just the other day. We watch a movie, and it's professionally done, and it's connected to something that we love, and other movies, and it's so good, and then won't they slip something right in? Now, the easy ones are, oh, they slipped in an improper relationship or nudity or swearing or violence. Those are the easy ones. The hard ones are when they slip in a new worldview and they say something like, hey, here's this great show and it's all about follow your heart because that's a good idea. Trust in yourself only, also not a good idea. How about the, the make a grandiose movie with great music and the whole theme of the movie is don't trust your parents. That's the way our world works though, doesn't it? Puts out this great, beautiful thing and there's so much good in there. I mean, there could be 90% goodness in there and you're like, this is such a good movie as long as you look past this and this and this. Oh yeah, and that. I forgot about that. Right? That's the way the world works. The world wants to weasel its way in. Because here's the thing. Satan knows if he made a movie that stood up and said, Jesus is not God, the Christians would be like, yep, not going to pay for that. I'm going to cancel that streaming service because of that. But he knows if he goes, hey, look at this. This is family values. Oh, yeah, and here's a new version of the family. Oh, yeah, and here's a new way to view whatever. See, that's the way the devil works. He cannot take God on mano y mano. If God and Satan had the boxing match, that like Carmen, remember that old guy Carmen, right, that he had with Satan and Jesus boxing? If they had that boxing match, it would last that long. God wins. God wouldn't have to even hit him. He would just look at him. Boom, he's gone. <laughs> Satan knows. Satan's not stupid, okay? Let's not think that Satan's a moron. He's smart. He's not going to attack God full frontal. Instead, he's going to weasel his way around behind through Treachery, confusion, that's the way he works. And that's what we see here. He cannot take on God, so he must try to subvert what God has done. Every time the gospel advances, there's always little ways that, the, that Satan tries to ruin it. Here's some examples. God says government is something we need. Sin comes along and says, you know what? Government's a good God. 
We should worship government. Or better yet, rulers, everybody loves you. They all voted for you. You should be a tyrant. You should get more power. God says sex is a good thing. Sin says lust is where it's at. God says, you know, having wealth is okay. Sin says, but you always need more. More and more and more. God says marriage is what we must have for emotional safety and sexual intimacy. And yet evil comes along and goes, well, you don't need that marriage stuff. Just skip right to the intimacy. Why wait? God says friendship's a good thing. We go, nah, I'll just settle for acquaintances or online friends. God says real relationship is what we were made for. We settle for bumping into people at the store and not really knowing anyone. See, God makes good, and all the devil can do is come along and pollute. That's all he can do. And see, we, we miss this because we forget that there is a cosmic battle going on between good and evil, because we look around and everything seems to be okay. Yeah, there's some parts of this that we don't like in here. We forget the fact that there is a raging lion, the devil, who is out to devour and destroy. And he is held at bay by God. But he's still a raging lion. We need to change the way we look at this. So we see here God is not the originator of evil. The devil simply copies what God does and then perverts it. However, this, this parable lets us know there is judgment coming. There is going to be a reckoning. So now I want to get into who's not mentioned in this parable. Okay? The one group that is not mentioned or not explained to us are the servants. Who are the servants? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us that. Because I, I think what he's saying is the servants are the disciples. The servants are us. The servants are the righteous. And if you're righteous and you're paying attention at all, you're going to have the same questions that they had, which is, why is this not going the way we think it should be going? So the response to the servants is throughout, and this is where we get to see what God is like. So the first thing we see, the first part of the response to the servants is that God is in control. This is that God is sovereign. So what are the servants saying to the master? They're going, Master, you done messed up. You screwed up. You went and bought the bag that said 90% weeds and 1% seed, right? You didn't buy the one that says 99% seed and 1% weeds, right? You got the wrong one. You messed up. Were you even paying attention, God? I mean, come on, God. Look at there's weeds there. You, you know better than that. Come on. Matter of fact, they volunteer to fix it for him after bringing it to his attention. Talk about taking a problem and making it worse, right? And isn't this us sometimes? We sit back and we go, God, you know, this is not the way it should have gone. I think this should have gone a totally different way. What are you doing? Are you, are you Hello, are you there? Are you paying attention? You messed up, God. What we, we see here, though, our first lesson is that it actually was the servants who messed up. Look at what it says the servants did says the servants were asleep. And they said, how did this happen? They were unaware. But look at the master. The master knew what was going on. See, the thing about it is, is these ser servants sleep. And this is not knocking people falling asleep. Servants needed their sleep. But the point is, is that the master did not sleep. Verse 28, he says, yeah, I, I know who did it. 
The enemy did it. They came and they sowed. This is not a surmising it. He's saying, I know it. I miss nothing. Spurgeon writes, the householder had not slept, for he knew who had done the cruel wrong. Look at the, the psalm that, that Aaron read here at the beginning. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps either, Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a promise. You don't do it. We, we can't keep us. We can't stop ourselves from dying. We can't stop ourselves from anything. But the Lord keeps us. He holds us together. So the weeds, the bad things, the tares were not sown because the master was not paying attention, because he is sovereign. He is in control. The next thing we see is we see God has a plan, God's providence. And the lesson here is the enemy only does what he's permitted to do. The enemy only does what he's permitted to do. See, God's awake. God's watching. The enemy's thinking, hey, it's dark. Those guys are asleep. I'm going to sneak in. Jesus, God's going, yeah, I, I saw it. I could have stopped it but I didn't. Look at Daniel chapter 4. This is a pagan king saying about God, for his dominion is everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 115, our Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deep. So the only reason that the enemy was able to come in and sow these was because God allowed him. God allowed him. Now you go, wait a sec, that, that does not gel with how I want to view things. But what we need to understand, and one of the truths in the Bible, and it's a truth that is really hard to get. It's hard to explain, especially if you're the one feeling the oppression of the weeds. And that is that God uses sinful people's actions. He uses those for the betterment of good people in the most roundabout sort of ways. Think of Joseph, for example. Remember Joseph? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. At first they were going to kill him, but then they say, hey, we can make money off this guy. So they sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He's still living an upright moral life and in prison, or he gets thrown in prison there for doing the right thing. And even when he's in prison, he helps a guy out and he still is stuck in prison over and over and over again. Why? To save Israel from starvation. He says that at the end of the book of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see this throughout. God accomplishes the good of many through the sinful deeds of a few. Job, another example. Judas. Judas is a good example. Of, of all the people that God should have stopped, it probably should have been Judas and the betrayal. But knowing that that sinful act would lead to such an amazing thing, God in his wisdom, again, because he's God and we're not, he allows it to happen. Look at what Acts 2 says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, 
that God did through him in your midst, as you know yourselves. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right there. God had a plan, and you were, the, you were the instrument. You were the ones that did the sinful thing, but God's plan was for this goodness to come from it. The devil is only allowed to do whatever God allows him to do. And again, Spurgeon, I didn't quote Spurgeon last week in the sermon, so I'm getting quite a few in this week. <laughs> Spurgeon writes, If you could choose your own circumstances and condition in life, you could not have made a wiser choice than what God has made for you. Now, that's hard to hear. I, 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 I get it. It's hard to hear when you're in the midst of a trial. It's hard to hear when you're in the midst of stuff not going the way it should. But the constant drumbeat of the Bible is God has a plan. And because he's good, you can trust his plan. And yeah, you know what? It hurts. I mean, the Psalms, there's laments throughout. They're crying out to God. Cry out to God. He's just waiting to reveal it to you. So this leads us to our next one. God is love. God is love. The lesson here is that the master protects his own. Jesus is patient with the wheat. He's patient with them. Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The weeds. He's enduring the weeds. Why? In order to make the riches of his glory of vessels of mercy. So he wants to show off how great his wheat are going to be. Because if he chops them down now, they're not going to bear fruit. They're not going to get as big as they are. And we'll see also, there's not the opportunity for the weeds to become wheat. The Lord did not permit the devil to pull out any of the wheat. Not a single piece of wheat is lost in this parable. And this is totally in line with what Jesus said elsewhere, John 10. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, the servants don't understand that their, their idea is, hey, let's, take these, let's get these weeds out of here, man. That's just terrible. Let's get these weeds out. And yeah, we'll lose a few wheat on the way there, but it's worth it, right, to get rid of the weeds. And Jesus is saying, no, those wheat are precious to me. I am not going to lose a single one. They are too valuable. 2 Peter 3 tells us this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, His love for us is so great that He's willing to put up with those who rebel against Him so that we can reach fruition. We can reach our, where we're supposed to be at. So as we look at this, if we stopped here and we just said, God is in control, he has a plan, and God is love, then, wow, this life's just going to stink. But there's more to the parable. And we see that God is the judge. And not only is he the judge, he's the just judge. And not only that, he's the just judge who's coming soon. He will be here soon. Look at verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire... So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the end of time. And you may say, I don't see anything about there about it coming soon. Well, Jesus taught, and the apostles taught, the disciples taught, that the end of everything is coming soon. 
And they taught that 2,000 years ago. So guess what? It's a lot closer now than it was then. And so the end is coming. We don't know if it's 10 days, 10 hours, or 100 years, but we do know it is coming. Notice it says the angels will, will go through and weed out everything that causes sin. All of the wicked weeds will be pulled out. Again, Spurgeon writes, the angels will know their master's property. They know each saint, for they were present at their birthday. Angels know when sinners repent. Remember, they throw parties in heaven when a single sinner repents. And they never forget the person. They have witnessed the lives of those who have believed. They've helped them in their spiritual battles, so they know them very well. Yes, angels, by a holy instinct, discern the Father's children and are not to be deceived. They will not fail to gather all the wheat and to leave out all the tares. This coming judgment is, is here. This, in verse 42, when it talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's two emotions there. The weeping is sorrow and going, oh, really? I made that choice. And the gnashing of teeth is anxious or pain. It's not enjoyable. This parable is really the story of all of history. This is what we see throughout all throughout history, we see tares and wheat. We see regenerate and unregenerate. We see Jacobs and Esau's. We see hypocrites and we see true believers. And what we don't see is we don't see the judgment yet. Now we, come, we kind of try to weasel in bad things happening to people and say, well, that's judgment. That's not the way the Bible works. Spurgeon again, and this is the last one. So he writes, sinners are not, as a general rule, punished here on earth. Their sentence is reserved for the day of judgment. Some people regard every accident as a judgment, but we do not agree with them at all. Else should we have frequently to condemn the innocent. This is not the time of judgment. Judgment is yet to come. So when bad things happen to good people, we need to remember, one, that's just the nature of the world we live in. And two, the real judgment is coming. So if we can imagine the worst possible thing that could happen to a person on earth, that's tiny in comparison to the judgment that they will be standing before. So what is this judgment that we see them based on? Well, it's not bad and good people and righteous and unrighteous people. It's people that are in Christ and people that are not. That's the only two kinds of people in the world. There's not good people out there and bad people out there and then also Christians. No, there's in Christ and there's not in Christ. See, our righteousness will never be good enough to earn our way to heaven. It's just not, not going to work. There's one whose righteousness is good enough and it's Christ. So when we find ourselves in Christ, that's what gets us into the good judgment as opposed to the bad. You cannot earn your way to heaven. All you can do is be bad enough to deserve hell, which you all are. We'll see this some more as we look at the parable of the net in a few weeks. But see, when we look at judgment, most of the time judgment is a bad thing, right? But there's also the good side of judgment. And we see this here. We see that the righteous will be judged and receive a reward. Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We will shine like the sun. What a, what a picture. Some of you are feeling the sun shining right now in your eyes over here. I can see that, right? But it's like that, but even more. We can't even look at the sun lest we burn our eyeballs. And yet that's what we're compared with. We are going to shine like the sun. Daniel 12, 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness 
of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness are like the stars forever and ever. Matthew 5, Jesus has already said this, we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do we people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, evil will flourish and enemies will succeed, but we have this reward coming for us for standing and being the wheat we are supposed to be. So I see three things if you're here today and you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior that we are told to do. The first one is we, meet, we need to have hope. We need to understand. We need to straighten our stock up. We need to get our eyes up where they belong. Right now, we've got our eyes horizontally, and we're like those POWs in the prison camp. We're looking around us and going, there's no hope. They've still got guns. They still make us dig holes for no reason. They still throw us into these sheds with nothing. And it looks like the enemy's winning. But there's hope. We know the war is nearly over. We know the king is coming down the street. So there is hope. Keep your heads up. The king is coming. Elections and governments and economics and finances and retirements and none of that will take care of us. None of that will save us. Only the true king will save us. And he is at the doorstep. The second one is we have some internal action that we need to take. We have some action that we need to do here in the family of God. And that is we need to encourage the fellow wheat. How terrible would it have been for that guy to make a, a, a radio out of that cantina and then not tell anybody the good news that Patton's down the street and he's on his way and we're going to be liberated here in just a minute. Because what's the number one killer of prisoners in POW camps? Is it the Germans? Is it the Japanese? Is it the Italians that we were fighting against at that time? No. What is it? It's, it's, it's the encouragement of knowing that you can survive. The lack of hope is the most dangerous thing for a prisoner. Lack of hope. How terrible would it be to see fellow believers give up right before Jesus shows up? So we need to encourage each other. Seeing the weeds around us does not mean that our king's not coming. Because he told us nearly 2,000 years ago, this was the way it was going to be. So we need to encourage each other. And that means sometimes when we're in the midst of a cruddy situation, we need each other to say, eyes up. Get those eyes up. The king is coming. This is temporary. I mean, there's so many Bible passages that you can just remind each other of. And we need that, don't we? We need that constant reminder of those passages. And the third thing is external action. We got to go take it to the weeds, folks. See, just like the POWs know the army is coming, we know the king is coming. The difference is, is that when our king comes, there's no peace to be had with the enemies. There's nobody that's going to stand before God and go, okay, I repent now. Too late. There's no treaties, there's no surrender, there's no amnesty, there's no second chances. He will arrive in power and it's done. We see the signs. He's coming soon. We know it. The promises are good. And the only way, the only way to save the weeds is to tell them the good news. 
The king is coming. It would be absolutely a terrible testimony to each and every one of us here if the people we know who are weeds don't know that the king is coming, that they don't know that they are weeds. The last thing they should have is surprise when Jesus shows up because we have told them so many times that he is coming that he is the king, he's the rightful owner of this. Yes, they are going to be disappointed that they didn't choose him, but they should never, ever be surprised because we have made it so clear to them. Now, does that mean it's going to be all fun and games when you're sitting at Thanksgiving and you're talking about this kind of thing? No, this may mean that they have some hurt feelings, but I would rather hurt feelings and let them know the truth than have them feel really comfortable on their way to hell. This is key. The same king that is coming, that we are praying to, that is keeping the weeds at bay, that is protecting us, is also softening the soil, and he's using us to do it. So be that to those you see. So there's one little, one little sentence that I left out. Verse 43, right at the end. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus has said this over and over and over again. Every time he said it up to this point, he said it to the crowds. And there's this, this phrasing is, oh, let him hear. It doesn't really have the power. Really what this is saying is, those of you who have ears, better listen up. Listen up. This is key. And so Jesus is saying this again to say, listen, go tell the weeds. Because up to this point, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's been no good news. All I promised you was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there was some fire mixed in there too. There is no good news except for Jesus finishes the parable with this. It's not too late. You may be like, I think I'm a weed or I'm not a good piece of wheat yet. And you're unsettled. Remember, parables are to unsettle those who are not in the kingdom. So if you're here today and this is unsettling you, praise God, that's the Holy Spirit. That's called tilling. He's tilling your soil. He's upsetting the soil. You have to upset the soil to get the seed in, right? So he's unsettling you. Don't let this go by. Because here's the deal. In this room, this is a room full of ex-weeds, amen? Every single one of us was a weed at one point. None of us got in because we were born into the kingdom. None of us got in because mom and dad were Christians. We got in because God tilled our soil planted the seed in us, and we bore fruit. That's what brings us in. So if you're a weed here today, or if you know weeds that you're going to see this week, it is not too late. Tell them about the good news. The good news is there. And what do we do? We repent, which means we turn and say, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Lord, I need you to do it. Grab hold of him that doesn't make sense to you and it's all this church gobbledygook, come see me. Come see one of the elders. Grab somebody sitting around you and say, explain this to me easier. Let's get it. Because a day cannot go by without you being his wheat. Because nothing is guaranteed. We're not guaranteed to see next Sunday. So if we're going to have to stand before the Lord, we're going to stand before the Lord by ourselves or we're going to stand before the Lord with Jesus right there saying, this one is mine, because he is worthy. He is the righteous one. So today, if you're here, you know the Lord, you got some marching orders. 
You need to have hope. You need to spread that hope to each other. And then you need to go after those weeds. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord and you're a weed, if you're unsettled, that's on purpose. The Lord wants your heart. Don't leave today without doing something about it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this parable. As we continue to look through these parables, Lord, they, they, they sure do a lot of looking into us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work on us. Unsettle us wheat as well. Continue to put your roots deeper into us and make us more like you. And Lord, I pray that if we don't know you, that you would take today and help this to be our, our new birthday, our rebirth day. Look forward, Lord, to what you're going to do in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.